Tonight we discuss Nehemiah, the career of Nehemiah. Last week we discussed Ezra, today we do Nehemiah. Why it's in that order, we'll have to address at the end of tonight's talk. Uh, maybe that order is incorrect. Big historical debate about that. Who came first? We were assuming that Ezra came first, so we'll do Nehemiah now. He arrives in Eretz Yisrael in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, which is 445 before the Common Era, after an attack on Jerusalem. doesn't say who did that attack, <coughs> who perpetrated it, uh, but the, the walls of the city were uh, terribly breached, major damage, the gates were destroyed by fire, the city of Jerusalem, which is the center of Yehud Medinata, the Judean province, the center of restored Jewish life in Eretz Israel now lays uh, exposed to further attack by outsiders who object to the Jewish presence in the land. Well, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the Persian monarch back in uh, points east, very far away from Eretz Israel, and the king notices that Nehemiah doesn't look so happy one day. His cheerful countenance is... Uh, has been replaced with a sallow expression. Well, Nehemiah says he's troubled, troubled over the fate of Jerusalem, the holy city in his uh, native uh, homeland, his, his ancestral homeland, and he requests permission to go and build up the city, to restore its fortifications, to make it a safe place again. That's what he would like to do. His request is granted, and he makes his way to Jerusalem. What did he request? He, he asked for permission to be sent as an a, a, a official Persian emissary to build up the material defenses of the city of Jerusalem and restore its, its population. The, uh, the trip was a safe one because he had soldiers protecting his caravan. This is quite different from what we discussed last week about Ezra. What did Ezra do? He took no soldiers. Instead, what did he rely upon? Hashem. He fasted back in, at the river Ahava, and he uh, had a, a period of, of, of fasting and prayer to beseech God for protection along the way. But no soldiers. Nehemiah was a protected caravan. Why the difference between the two? Any ideas? He was nine years after Ezra? Well, let's assume for the moment that he's about 13 years after Ezra. 458 and 445. 444. King, uh, was there a different king? Same king. Artaxerxes Longamanus. Jerusalem had been attacked. So it's a shatat chak. It's a dangerous time. Jerusalem is under siege, so therefore Jews need protection. Okay, so that's one answer. Another is the different role that Ezra and Nehemiah play in the Jewish life. One is a religious figure, the other is a political figure. Ezra is religious, Nehemiah is political. A politician needs the secret service, but the big rabbis don't need security guards. They can go on the street, nobody's going to touch them. They have divine protection. That's the, uh, the, the theory behind the different approaches towards the, the trip. Okay. Uh, who is the main opponent of the Jewish presence in Jerusalem, and who might we accuse of having done damage 
to the, def- the physical defenses of Jerusalem. Samaritans are one possible choice. Any others? <coughs> well, basically every surrounding nation which had encroached upon Judean territory over the past hundred years since the previous destruction. They were t- gobbling up plots of land closer and closer to the heartland, closer to Jerusalem, and these other peoples would not want to see the Jewish presence expanded, or, to fe- or for that matter, for the Jewish presence to feel safe. So, the book of Nehemiah says that Sanbalat HaChoroni, Sanbalat the Choronite, is the leader of the gang of opponents to the Jewish presence. It is assumed that he is the governor of Samaria, that he holds an official position in the Persian administration in Shomron. Why is this assumed? What is the Choroni? Where is Choron? Well, Malat Beit Choron is in Israel, about 18 miles uh, northwest of Jerusalem, in what is the southern region of what we would call today the Shomron, Samaria. And that was the seat of his government, Beit Choron, so Sanbalata Choroni. He and Tuvia Eved Ammoni, Tuvia the Ammonite, they opposed the Jerusalem project, together with the Arabs and the Ashdodites. Where, where do the Arabs come from? The Aravim. Aren't they in Arabia? Answer is, for the longest time, the tribes of the Arabian Peninsula have been bursting forth, going north into the settled regions of Mesopotamia, trying to conquer more and more land. In the previous year's lectures, we had discussed that it was the Roman, Emperor, the Roman Empire and the Byzantine, Byzantine Empire that protected Eretz Yisrael from Arab invasion for a long time. That even though the Jews didn't like being under the, uh, uh, the suzerainty of hostile, polytheistic, and later Christian empires, the bottom line is that they had soldiers and powerful armies that kept the Arab hordes from moving north and taking over territory. But that from, from time immemorial, there are these uh, Arabic and Nabataean tribes that are bursting forth uh, from the south, encroaching upon Eretz Yisrael. Are these the same Arabs that you would say as of today, or the different tribes? Uh, it's impossible to, 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 to answer that question other than to say that nomadic and barbaric peoples coming from the, the Arabian Peninsula are, are moving north. Whether they're, they're, this clan is related to that clan, I don't know. Not, not, not my topic. So, the Jews are in danger of attack at all times. They're exposed as they work on the project of rebuilding the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Remember, if, that, if, if you're building a wall, it's, it's the case that the wall isn't completed yet, uh, and you're not safe, and you might be standing on the wrong side of the wall during the, pro- the, pro- the process of construction. I'm reminded of the foolish thing that I did in 2002 on my first trip to Israel. I w- it was an Amuna of America trip, with the Great Neck Synagogue, and they took us to Gilo. And the tour guide took us to the other side of the wall to show us the bullet holes. And I thought to myself, after about 30 seconds of standing there, people are shooting right at this wall, and I'm uh, like a fool, I'm standing on the wrong side. So as long as the wall doesn't yet exist in, in a completed state, Jews are in danger of attack, of a stabbing, of a archery, of, of a lance being, uh, hitting them. <coughs> so there are, there are uh, isolated attacks on Jews, 
and half the, the uh, population is told to work on the construction project, and the other half serve as security guards protecting the construction site. Half the people are holding a, a spear, while the other half are holding uh, shovels and, and, uh, and pickaxes. So this is a, a radical change from what the prophets had said not much before. Here, Nehemiah is asking the Persian king, give me permission to go to Jerusalem to defend the Jewish people in the Holy Land, that they should have a settled existence and be safe and secure. Only 130 years earlier, the prophet Yirmiyahu had told the people on their way out of Eretz Yisrael to build homes and plant gardens in Babylonia, that you're going to be there for a while. Enjoy your comfortable existence in the Chutz Laaretz, in the Galut. Well, plenty of people took his word and said, okay, fine, we'll stay in the Galut in a comfortable existence with our homes and with our vineyards and our orchards, and that's the way it will be. But, five generations or so later, some people are willing to, to face danger for the sake of Eretz Yisrael. Remember, when Cyrus issues his proclamation in 538, the Jews who go don't anticipate it being a very uh, challenging matter when it comes to physical security. It might be that, you know, kashot, all beginnings are difficult, in that the economy isn't built up, and religious infrastructure is not built up, and we have to do hard work to accomplish those goals, but the, but the king says it's okay, so who's going to attack us? We'll be physically safe in our own land. That was no longer the case by the middle of the 5th century BCE. And so yet people are willing to uh, risk life and limb for the sake of Eretz Yisrael. There's one uh, halachic matter that is derived from the, the verses dealing with the hours of operation of the construction site. Does anybody know? Hulan Gemar Brachos. What is the halachic day? When does it start? When does it end? The daytime starts at either the Neitzachama or the Alotashachar. The Neitzachama is, the, is the, the, the ball of the sun going over the horizon, and the, the Alotashachar is the crack of dawn. The end of the day is either the Shkiatachama, the ball of the sun goes below the horizon, or the Tzetakochavim, the arrival of the stars in the sky when it's really dark. So, for uh, many halachic purposes, we play it safe. We're not really sure, so we, we do the, the, the stringent version of things. When it comes to uh, davening shacharis, ideally it's not before the Neitz HaChama, even though that's an hour after the Alot HaShachar. When it comes to saying Havdalah at night, after Shabbos, we don't do Malacha until the Tzedek Chavim. We don't suddenly turn the TV on after the Shkiat HaChama. We play it safe in both directions. Well, what is really the beginning and end of the day? So based upon this pasuk, it is, it is concluded that the Alot HaShachar and the Tzedek Chavim are the beginning and end. Dawn, the, the, the crack of dawn and true darkness, that the uh, sun up and sun down are not the beginning and end of the day for, the, for real halacha considerations. So therefore, uh, regarding Torah mitzvot, if you fulfill it after the Alot HaShachar, Ex post facto, it's kosher. It's legit, even though you didn't wait for the Netzachama, and that's that's learned out from from this uh, this pasuk. Yeah. What was the condition of the um, of the base at this point? 
Interestingly, the text of Ezra Nehemiah does not really deal with the building of the, 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 the physical structure of the sanctuary. It's more concerned with the walls of the city and the gates of the city because um, protection against uh, hostile enemies was Nehemiah's main concern. We'll see he was concerned about, about the temple and the Levitical ties and making sure that the Klanim and Levim had their emoluments and could function, but we don't hear anything about the, um, the sanctuary proper. Why? I don't know. Was there a vote being done? Absolutely. There was a vote being done even before the, uh, the, the building was, was put up. That's 100% clear from the, from the early chapters of Ezra, uh, chapter 3 of Ezra, that um, there were korbanot al-hamizbeach even in the absence of a bite, of a physical building. Just as there had been korbanot in the tabernacle days without a big structure of Solomon. Okay. <coughs> there was an economic crisis that um, faced the Jewish population in the days of Nehemiah. Uh, when he got there, he was very distressed with what he saw, that there were Jews oppressing and enslaving fellow Jews who had fallen into debt and were forced to sell off their land and their possessions to feed their family. That small uh, land, uh, land, uh, landowners um, who had a tiny plot in good years could have subsistence living from that plot of land. But in bad years, couldn't feed their family, and the only thing they had to sell was the land itself, or maybe some of the meager possessions. Tenant farmers. So they became tenant farmers, even though they were supposed to be freeholders. Um, but what happens if even as a tenant farmer, you can't function, you don't have enough to survive, you end up selling your own physical body into slavery. According to the halacha, under what conditions can a person become an Evid Ivri? Okay, so a person could become Evid Ivri for theft, and he can't pay back the principal, then, then it, that's coerced, or uh, being impoverished, possibly because of indebtedness, and voluntarily selling themselves into slavery which is a sad state of affairs, but can happen. Uh, what is supposed to happen to the, the uh, enslaved Hebrew uh, after the required period of six years? They're supposed to be released. Uh, regardless of whether or not the debts have been paid back, they, they, they've, they've done their service, and that's it. Well, there's a tendency not to free your slaves. Once a person, uh, de- uh, a master develops this um, uh, relationship with an underling where he is the superior figure and the underling has no rights, no freedoms, it's tempting to ignore the law of the Bible and say, all right, you're mine forever. In the book of Yirmiyahu we found that, that the Jubilee years were, were being uh, circumvented by a, a release of the slaves and then immediately re- recapturing them and bringing them back into slavery. So a breaking of the law but the, the, the wealthy people, the machers, could get away with it. So Nehemiah comes to Eretz Yisrael and sees that the Jewish community uh, is divided between the, the wealthy few and the impoverished many who are really suffering. So he protests this moral ill and imposes a jubilee release upon all the, uh, the, the, those who were in debt slavery on the basis of some Torah law? Not really, no just because he's the boss. He has authority from the, uh, the king. The, the, the reigning king in Persia gave him 
temporal control over Yehuda Medinata, and so he says, jubilee release of slaves, they're all going to go free. Very nice of him. He leads by example, and during the 12 years of his service, from 444 to 432, because he has two terms as governor, first is a 12-year term, then he goes back to Persia, then he comes back to Israel for an indefinite uh, length of time, we're not really sure, but during his 12 years of service in the beginning, he doesn't take a salary, he pulls a Bloomberg. And that's a a, a chesed, because he would be paid by the Persian administration, but the Persian administration would get its funds from taxing the local population. So by not taking a salary, he is sparing the Jews from having to pay burdensome taxes, which were already very, very burdensome. Um, That was the chesed he did for the people. Okay. Sanbalat and Tovia tried to distract Nehemiah from the building of the walls. They, the enemies of the Jews, would like to see Jerusalem exposed and open to further attack. They don't want to see the wall go up. So they try several strategies to uh, disrupt the project. The first is to invite him to some kind of like a peace conference, a diplomatic conference of, of local governors, on the premise that Tovia is the, um, the, the governor of the Ammonite region, and Sanballat is the governor of the, the Sumerian region, and Nehemiah is the governor of the Yehud region. So there'll be like a local gathering of the, of the governors, at which time they would probably kill him, or uh, kidnap him, or so, do some physical harm to Nehemiah that would prevent the, uh, the building project from continuing. But he refuses to go... He rejects all the invitations, saying he's busy with very important work. Sorry, I'm too busy to see you. Then, they send not a closed letter, a sealed letter, but rather an open letter uh, to Nehemiah, which was read publicly, accusing him of trying to rebel against Persia and become the king of an independent Judah. That's a very serious accusation. Remember, in the book of Ezra, we read about the early days of the Second Commonwealth, when the opponents of, this, of, the, of the building of the Beit HaMikdash accused the Jews of being a rebellious people by nature, and that the Persian kings should put a halt to the construction of the Beit HaMikdash, because if it's allowed to go forward, what's going to happen? The Jews will establish for themselves their own king of the Davidic dynasty, and they'll break away from the Persian uh, government. And so the accusation went, the entire Aver Hanahar region, the, the entire uh, uh, western of the, west of the Euphrates region of the kingdom, would be lost to Persia. And temporarily that argument worked until the prophets Chagai and Zechariah encouraged the people to build anyway and uh, ignore the, 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 the protests of the others, just go ahead with it. So again, the idea that the Jews are trying to have an independent kingdom, this is a serious accusation that many people would believe. It's possible, and we suggested this a few weeks ago, that Zerubbabel, the early governor of Yehud Medinata, who disappears from the record after a few years, was deposed or replaced by the Persian administration precisely because he was of Davidic descent, and they may have thought that he had ambition of becoming a real king, not just a vassal governor, but a real king. So, what does Nehemiah do? Deny, deny, deny. That's not our intention. Is Nehemiah telling the truth? As far as we can tell, yes. 
He was a loyal soldier in the, in the bureaucracy of Persia. He was a devout Jew and a believer in building up Eretz Yisrael. But at no point in time do we find any evidence whatsoever that he was trying to uh, overthrow per- Persian rule in favor of an independent kingdom. In fact, until the Hasmonean period, there really is no serious effort at all by any Jew to overthrow foreign suzerainty. So for a few hundred years, nobody tries this. It's a stunt that you can't pull off. Um, so he, he rejects that claim. Then they try a third strategy. They send a false prophet to encourage Nehemiah to enter into the temple precincts. And when I say the temple precincts, I don't just mean the Har Habayit, where any good Jew can go, as long as you're pure, or for that matter, even the Azara, where as long as you don't have uh, uh, any degree of impurity, or you're, truly, you're truly Tahor, you can st- step foot. I mean in the building. Who's allowed in the building? Only the Kohanim. In the Holy of Holies, only the Kohen Gadol. So they try to get him to commit a religious offense <coughs> on the theory that if he commits a religious offense, it's also a, a, a legal offense because the Torah is the law of the land and that the Jews will, will, will turn on him, will sour on him because of a misdeed, a religious misdeed. But he doesn't fall for it and he stays out of the temple building. Um... The, the project of, of putting up the wall took only 52 days. The text says it's because of divine help, that this was a major project and should have taken a lot longer, and it should have taken as long as the Second Avenue subway, but with Hashem's help, 52 days, and it was finished. What are you talking about? Is more where Ir David is now? The wall... All right, so the, the old city of the Second Commonwealth period did not include what is today uh, the western portions of the, of the, of the old city, of, 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 Su- of Suleiman's walls. So, uh, but it includes stuff further south. Basically, it's the Temple Mount, what is uh, the Jewish quarter, maybe part of the Armenian quarter, the Ir David, like the Chutzot Yotzer, if you know, uh, the artist colony down below. That was in, in the walls of, of the city of Jerusalem. Not the Christian quarter or the bulk of the Muslim quarter uh, today. That's in the new version of the is walls. Is there a remnant of that wall? That's still uh, right well, there's the, the there's the high wall that's just yeah. outside the Jewish quarter yeah. where there's a, a section you could... Right. Yeah. A tourist attraction. In Ir David also, there's a section of the wall. So, uh, 52 days and it's finished. Tobias, the Ammonite, was related by marriage to leading Jews. This is a problem. Intermarriage, we said, in the days of Ezra, was a crisis. They had to expel the foreign wives. Well, the problem didn't entirely go away. And here you have a governor of an Ammonite province being related by marriage to to leading Jews. The prominent and the wealthy married the prominent and the wealthy irrespective of national origins. That's not how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be the co-religious marry each other, but people were not so pious. So this Tuvia had access to information, sort of insider information, because of his uh, marital familial connections. That was a trouble spot for uh, Nehemiah's administration, that here he knows he has adversaries along his borders, but he has a fifth column inside of people who are related to the enemy. (coughs) Um, So Nehemiah prays uh, and fasts, upon the, the conclusion of the, uh, 
the building of the wall, and he recounts Jewish history from Abraham to the present. And the theme is that Israel sins, but God forgives. That many, many times our ancestors have done wrong in the eyes of the Lord, but we were never fully uh, eliminated. God didn't destroy us. He allowed us to continue. And so in Nehemiah's own day, there are many, many problems of impiety, of intermarriage, of uh, neglect of the temple. But don't worry, God can forgive that too. We should change our ways and be better, but God can forgive us. So the a covenant is entered into by Nehemiah in which the, all the Jewish people of the Yehud Medinatah, the Judean province, are uh, party to this covenant. They agree to follow the Torah given by God to Moses. What should strike you as odd by that statement? Huh? I'm not getting into just the Torah of Moses the Torah given by God to Moses what's, what's troubling about that? alright so there's a concept in the Gemara of Mushba Ve'omed Mehar Sinai what am I talking about? what does that mean? Mushba Ve'omed Mehar Sinai who learns Dafyomi? Who, who knows a little Gemara here? Mushba Ve'omed Mehar Sinai all right, so that's a homiletic uh, extension of it. But basically, Jews don't take a shvua, an oath, to fulfill a mitzvah because it's superfluous in that we're already bound by an oath from Mount Sinai to fulfill God's law. So you don't take a, a, a solemn oath to not eat pork or to, to, not, to not eat on Yom Kippur, or to keep Shabbos. We don't do these things, because we don't need to. We're already bound by the covenant of uh, the past. That's a good answer. Uh, that in, in, in times of irreligiosity, sometimes uh, desperate times call for desperate measures. Uh, but beyond that, we see here that people may not have been aware of the notion of a Mosaic Torah. It might, this might sound like very shocking. Now, from a critical point of view, you can understand why. If the, if the Torah is being, is, is being redacted now, it's a davar chadash, it's a new thing. The substance is not necessarily new, the mitzvot are old, but the redacted Torah is new, being ascribed to Mosaic authorship. But even within, within a traditional point of view, you could say that the average person didn't really know anything about Torah. They had certain Judaic practices that they did or didn't do to a, whatever extent they wanted to be considered observant or pious, but they were not familiar with the Mosaic Torah. Now, here it is right in front of them. Who reads it? Ezra reads it in public. This relates to the question of whether Ezra and Nehemiah ever crossed paths. We'll have to deal with that in about 20 minutes. Did they know each other personally? It's, it sounds like that Ezra was at this, co- this covenant of Nehemiah and read the Torah. So, if, if they didn't a limited number of people, the Kohanic uh, 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 elite who knew the Torah, and for example, the likes of who found Devarim in the days of Yoshiahu, uh, hidden in the corner of the temple, they found the scroll. What is it? The Book of Devarim. Nobody ever saw it before. No one ever saw it before, or no one had seen it in five hundred years. People didn't see a Torah. Now they're they're seeing a physical copy of Torah, and they're gonna they're gonna adhere to it. Okay. The next thing. No intermarriage. No intermarriage. At all. Not, not just with the Canaanite nations 
or nations like the Ammonites and Moabites about whom the Torah has uh, um, specific restrictions, but no intermarriage period. No commerce on Shabbos. Here is a big one. Um, the no commerce on Shabbos is an, is an attempt to define Malacha as it appears in the Torah. What is Malacha? 39 Where does the number 39 come from in the, in the list of the 39 Malachot? There was no commerce. Okay. The 39 Malachos come from the building of the Mishkan, or for that matter, from the, the regular functioning of the Mishkan, depending upon whether you want to follow of Haigon or Rashi. It's Machlokis, whether it's the building or the functioning. Okay. Where, does that, where is that concept first articulated? That, that the, the, the Malachot of Shabbos are what we knew from the Mishkan. In the Tanaitic literature, which is very late in the game, the number 39... Specifically, the number 39 in reference to the Mlachot first appears when? In what body of literature? In a Brysa from, uh, emanating from the fourth Tanaitic generation, from a secret notebook of Isi ben Yehuda, the Megillat Starim, followed then by Rebbe's Mishnah in the seventh chapter of Masechet Shabbat, Abaim Chaserachat. Okay, that's the point. So until then, how many laws were there? So there is a, a, a one version of the story that says, Abaim Melachot Chaserachat, 39 labors, Namru Lola Moshe Misinai, were said to Moses at Mount Sinai. Rebbe makes that claim. But there is another version of it that says, 39 Melachos. Nishnu Rabbosenu Mishnah were taught by the rabbis in the Mishnah. Well, what is it? Is it from Moses on Mount Sinai or is it from the Mishnah? Could be either one. So then we have another version that says that the Sofrim were called Sofrim because they counted things. For example, 36 Krisus or 4 Avos Nezikin or 4 Rishuyas the Shabbos and 39 Avos Malachos which means what? That the number 39 comes from the Sofrim, who are uh, subsequent to the Anshei Knesset Agdolos, Second Temple era, not Moshe Misenai. Well, what's the real truth here? So I wrote an article a couple of years ago that uh, basically proves the number 39 is credited to the Sofrim, which means it can't go any earlier than that, but even that is an exaggeration that until the fourth Tanaitic generation, there were a lot of things you couldn't do on Shabbos. A lot of things. Hundreds of things. And then, someone decided to make an arbitrary, or not so arbitrary, distinction between Avot and Toladot. What are Avot and Toladot? Major category, Major category and subsidiary categories. This concept was rejected by Rabbi Eliezer, a second generation Tana, which means that it's not that old of a concept. Because if Eliezer could reject it, it's got to be something new and controversial. Okay? So this is uh, Rabbi Yoshua and the others make a chiluk between an av and a tolda and say you can be mechayev a korban, a chatos, for every av, but not every tolda. Okay. Second, second century, early sec- late first, early second century. Okay, so if that's true, that there was no distinction, then there are a few hundred things you can't do on Shabbos. And are there 39 avot malachot? No, because the concept doesn't exist. Then in the late Tanitic times, the concept of the Av and the 39 Avot emerges, but was it sacrosanct? Meaning, did people play games with that list, or no? 
if it's really important, if it was from Moshe Misina, you can't play games with it. But we find three passages in the Gemara where they do play games with the list. They take, they, they, they take out one and put in another. They, uh, they, t- they take out etching of lines and they, and they put in Ma'abed. What? Okay, so we're gonna. Get, yes, you're right. And in the days of Nehemiah, they have to control the people. Okay, <coughs> okay. So my, we're a little bit off topic, but my point of all this was to say that the definition of malacha evolved over time, and that even in the Amoraic period, the list of Rebbe's Mishnah was not regarded as absolutely uh, sacred, that they did insert things and, and, and take other things out, depending upon what they thought was correct. Nothing was ever done uh, with, with malice, or with the intention to subvert the tradition, but the tradition itself was very fluid. Okay. And have the same thing with 613, everybody, Rambam, and everybody's... The 613 is, is, 613 is the invention of Rav Simlai. Rav Simlai is not even a Tana, he's an Amora. In the days of the Tanaim, the Yenamani Mitzvahs they were in the Torah in the days of the Tanaim, roughly 300. Kishtosh that's what they say, 300 Mitzvahs. 300 is, big, is a big difference from 613. Answer is, it's how you count it. It's how you count it. Okay. If we had to put side by side Ezra's Tachanas and yeah. Samias, <coughs> right. where do they differ and where do they, were they the same? Because I see the intermarriage thing is the same. Is the same. Yeah. And what about anything? Any other commonalities between them? Ezra's were prime. Well, Ezra's are not listed. Remember in the Bible. These are things that are credited to Ezra by rabbinic literature that we think are probably correct because, because they make sense thematically, but it's about the study of Torah, the availability of Torah, uh, no intermarriage, personal chastity, um, and th- 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 those are the major issues. In Nehemiah's time, it's a broad swath of mitzvot. We're not done with the list here. Yes, it's mnemonic devices. It's, and if you know the 39, so now let's see what we got, and let's go through it in our head. Right, that's exactly what they did. And sometimes when one person goes to 39, he gets a little bit different of a list than another person's 39. So, we're trying to define Shabbos. No commerce on Shabbos. There are other verses in the Tanakh that tell us that in the late first temple period, exilic and post-exilic periods, the biggest challenge to Sabbath observance and the, the, the most important definition of malacha was commercial activity. The irony, of course, is that in rabbinic halacha, commercial activity is not a malacha. It's, it's, it's usur, it's forbidden, you can't do it, but it's not one of the 39 malachas. That's the irony of, of the, the evolution of Shabbos. Okay, no work in the Shemitah year, release of sabbatical debts, and a third sh- of a shekel annual payment. Stop me. What's wrong with that? Machtis shekel. Okay. What is the origin of Machtis shekel? So we read on Parshat Shkalim from Kitisa, although there's a Machlokas in the Mishnah and in the Tanaim as to whether or not Parshat Shkalim is Kitisa or it is what? The Rosh Chodesh laning of Parshat Pinchas. Because the Rosh Chodesh laning talks about the daily sacrifice and the, uh, the tamid and other sundry offerings. What does the shekel pay for? The tamid. So, Yeshomrim, those who would say, what should you read about the sacrifice? And Yeshomrim, those who would say, read about the money itself. What's the problem with reading about the money itself? 
If you actually read Parshat Kitisa, does it ever say that you have to give annually a half a shekel to support the temple, to pay for sacrifices? No. It's about the Trumat Adanim. It's about the one-time giving to the, to the tabernacle of the, of the wilderness because there are expenses involved in its construction, not functioning of a later temple on an annual basis. That's, that the Gemara in, um, in Megillah addresses this at length. So, what, when did Machatzir HaShekel actually begin? There's no historical record of it whatsoever before the Greek period, and, and possibly the early Roman period. It was a, a, an established religious practice in the late Second Temple times, so much so that even in the Chutz La'aretz, where Jews weren't so from, it was done religiously, and money was sent, golden uh, darkonim were sent uh, to Israel. By the way, Machatzira Shekel was in what, 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 what uh, precious metal? It was silver. So why did they send gold? Because they could convert a lot of silver into a, a smaller amount of gold. It would be easier to carry from the Chutz Why do I bring this up? Just to show you that it did take, uh, take root in all Jewish communities, including the, 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 the far-flung diaspora, in late Second Temple period but not the early Second Temple period. It was non-existent. It didn't, uh, they didn't know from these things. So the third of a shekel is a chidush, is not just a takeoff on the machatzir shekel. It's Nehemiah's invention. Why is it necessary? Because somebody's got to pay for these things. You know, Cyrus said he would make a donation. Daryavish said he would make a donation. Uh, but after you ha- the, the friendly Persian monarchs are gone... Who's going to pay for the functioning of the Beit HaMikdash? The Jews will have to pay for it. From what monies? The third of the shekel. Okay. What else is included in this covenant? Wood offerings, korban etzim, that specific clans of those who are in Zion, specific families, will on an annual basis, on a specific day of the year, for their family, give the etzim. What holiday uh, emerges from this uh, korban etzim? We learned about it last year. And, and Tishabov. So, this was an important element in Second Temple life. The wood donation. Wood was scarce. They didn't have the JNF forests. Tishabov and Tubaav. Because it was a week-long festival at one point in time, from the 9th to the 15th. Right, so this is a very important uh, part of uh, the celebratory life in Second Temple times. Then... A promise to keep the first fruits and the firstlings, meaning bikurim, bichorot, then maser, truma, trumat maser, all the Levitical emoluments. All these things are included in this covenant. There are those who argue, and uh, Louis Finkelstein actually was the leading proponent of this theory, that the Sadducees agreed to this covenant. And that's why they kept the Torah Shebikhtav. But this covenant did not include the Torah Shebaalpeh. And therefore, they had a sort of a literalist reading of the mitzvot of the Torah, of the Mosaic Law, and that's all they're bound by. They're not bound by extra non-Mosaic uh, religious laws, whose origins they either don't know where they come from or don't care where they come from. That's, a, 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 that's a, an important theory, but not necessarily the correct theory, on why the Sadducees reject part of our halacha. That this is, they were bound as participants in the, in the Nehemiah Covenant, but only to the law of Moses, as was seen literally. Okay. Then Nehemiah has another uh, task. He has to distribute the population. 
the Yehud Medinata, the province of Judah, of Yehud, is uh, maybe 20, 20 miles by 20 miles, with Jerusalem somewhere in the, in the center, or towards the northern part of the province. People don't want to live in Jerusalem, because even though it's a holy city, it's economically unattractive. People would rather live in the smaller towns or on farmland where they can cultivate the soil and support themselves. Living in an urban environment where you're beholden to uh, the, 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 uh, the food chain, the food supply coming in from, from outside, that's a little dangerous, especially if the city is under threat. So people had to be coerced to remain in Jerusalem. A, lot, a lottery system was, was uh, undertaken, and one-tenth of the population was forced to remain in Jerusalem, whether they wanted to or not. How big a population was It's impossible to know. The numbers in the, in the, in the Tanakh are, are, can't be relied upon to, to give us a, a real clear picture of the broader population. They just tell us who, how many were in each family, but that doesn't tell us the, the, the real total figure. Okay. Um, there was a major celebration with sacrifices upon the completion of the, the, the wall of the city. And people read about the Ammoni and Moavi not entering the community of God at the public reading of the Torah. In response, all foreign, peop- foreign peoples were separated, were eliminated. Not just the Ammoni and Moavi, but anyone who wasn't of pure Jewish blood was uh, kicked out. This is a very tough standard. Of course it caused problems. Was it strictly adhered to in the years ahead? No, as we shall see. But in, in the moment, temporarily, a lot of people were sent packing. Yeah. In Roman times, Goyim were allowed to go ahead and do uh, sacrifices in the base of English. Yes, that's true. And that was because of the problems when they stopped it because of the... Uh, because of Zechariah ben Kavuto. Yeah. So here, but So when did that start again, if they, they prohibited it? Well, under Nehemia, the, the, the population was made thoroughly Jewish. As for who could offer sacrifices in the temple, presumably the, the Jews would still offer sacrifices on behalf of uh, friendly outsiders who are not intermarrying with anybody but just want to offer a, 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 an animal in the house of the Hebrew God, whether the, the Persian kings or the Persian administration. I, there may have been a daily offering for, the, for Artaxerxes or whomever. It, it, the, the concern is not that they can't bring sacrifices. The concern is that people of mixed lineage shouldn't be loitering in, in, you know, near the holy places and, and mingling with our population and, and staying. So Nehemiah goes back to, to Persia after a 12-year tenure as the governor, he stays there for a little while and then returns to to Yehud, to Judea. While away, the high priest Eliashiv rented out storage rooms in the temple to Tovia, uh, his relative, Tovia the Ammonite, the enemy of the Jews. So here, it's like... uh, it's like giving Arafat uh, you know, some, uh, some uh, rooms in the King David Hotel. It's, it's, uh, you can't do this. Why did Eliashev do it? It was his relative. There was intermarriage. And Eliashev was corrupt. <coughs> when Nehemiah when finds out, he uh, throws Tobias' stuff out of the temple, cleanses the rooms, and restores the sacrificial material. So we see that Nehemiah's departure, uh, when, the, when the cat's away, the mice will play. People did things they shouldn't do. 
also the tithes were neglected, and the Levim, who were supposed to rely upon the tithes, were forced to leave the temple and find work in the fields. That's exactly what the Torah didn't have in mind. The Torah doesn't give a nachala, a physical heritage, to the tribe of Levi. They're supposed to live in the Levitical cities, which uh, are scattered out the, uh, throughout the land, but basically they're surviving on their, their ecclesiastical functions and their, their maiser. If nobody's giving maiser, they're going to starve. What are they going to do? Go work the land as a farmhand. Not a good thing. So Nehemiah comes back and reestablishes the tithes, uh, and he prides himself on this, and says to God, to God, you should remember what I did for the Levium, that I brought back the tithe system. But interestingly, it, it, the system was not as recorded in the halachic literature of Chazal. According to, to, to Chazal, which Levi gets the, the Maser, or for that matter, which Kohen gets the Truma from, from Goldberg's farm? Whoever Goldberg wants to give it to. What happens here? Goldberg has to give it to the temple, and the temple authorities distribute the uh, emoluments the way they see fit um, uh, to the Kohanim and Levim by some, uh, in some systematic fashion, which is actually more fair and uh, a safeguard against the, uh, the star- uh, starving Levim. Uh, under the halachic system, you know, Mr. Mr. Levy might have a ton of food, and uh, the other fellow might have nothing. Because he, nobody likes him. So nobody gives him any, any, any truma, any, any miser. Um, also, Nehemiah comes back and sees that there is commerce with the sale of foodstuffs on Shabbos. They weren't selling large appliances. They weren't selling uh, you know, stock options. Mainly foodstuffs were being brought into the city by outside vendors, possibly even non-Jewish vendors, on Shabbos, and uh, the people are buying. They want fresh food. This is a violation of the holy day. So, Nehemiah chastises them. According to, to Chazal, an important rabbinic safeguard of Shabbos was instituted at this time. What is that? What's the, 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 what is the most important safeguard on Shabbos? Muktzah. That Muktzah begins in the period of Nehemiah and that it was very, very onerous, that only three types of utensils were permitted betil tul, to be moved, to be touched on Shabbos, those that were required for food preparation uh, and food consumption, but that basically all other items were muksa, were off-limits. Is that the way the, 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 our contemporary halacha is? Not at all. We have categories of muktzah, like uh, muktzah machmas isur, things that are prohibited by, uh, by dint of a prohibition, or muktzah machmas chisar and kiss, things that are, are, are off-limits because they're too expensive and they might break, or muktzah machmas mius, things that are disgusting. Uh, we have categories of muktzah, things that we don't touch, we don't move around. But, if it's not in any of those categories, it's inherently permitted. If it's a kli shemalachto laheter, a vessel whose primary function is a permitted function, you're allowed to play around with it on Shabbos. So when did the law become liberalized? According to Chazal, in the beginning, when they had to crack down hard on the people, it was very, very onerous, almost everything is forbidden. Slowly but surely, step by step by step, more and more things became permitted, and the Muktzah law was dumbed down to what we have today. Okay. Um, There's also um, a reference 
in uh, Nehemia <coughs> to the gates of the city being closed late in the day on Friday and opening up at, uh, after nightfall on Saturday. Of what relevance is that? You're, you're, you're too sophisticated. Give me something much more elementary. Security. No. Shabbos. What about Shabbos? Keeping Shabbos. What about it? But in commerce. But if you can't get out, you'll be more prone to follow. When is Shabbos? What day of the week is Shabbos? Friday night. Friday night and Saturday. How about that? What does it say in the Torah? It doesn't say anything. It says, right, What does the Rashbam say about that? What comes first, day or night? So conventional wisdom, night comes before day in Judaism. What does the Rashbam say on, in Parshish Bereshis? No, day comes before night. Vahira Vayiboker was misunderstood by all the other Mepharshim. And the Art Scroll Chumash, if you know, has, has censored that Rashbam, <laughs> causing a big brouhaha in the, in the, in the world of, uh, of Jewish books, that they censored the Rashbam because they think it's not from enough. Um, but there's a real problem. What comes first, the day or the night? And there is reason to suggest that in the days of the Torah... Shabbos was observed from, sun, from Saturday morning to Sunday morning. How do we know that? Well, you could argue that in Parshish Peshalach, when uh, the man doesn't come down on Saturday, if you read the Psukim carefully, you could get the impression that Shabbos begins in the morning and that the night before wasn't Shabbos. Now, we know the halacha is not like that. I'm not here to suggest that we should we should change our, our practices. Okay. Okay. So so the fact that in the book of Nehemiah it says that they closed the gates late Friday afternoon and opened them Saturday night is definite evidence from a book of the Bible, admitted, uh, admittedly a late book of the Bible, that Shabbos begins on Friday night. Something that is never uh, uh, clearly articulated in the Torah or the early or the, or the other Nevi'im Rishonim. So at least in the, in, the, in the later books, in the Ketuvim, Shabbos begins on Friday night. Okay. <coughs> uh, the, the book of... Na- I'm not saying nobody... I'm not saying they didn't know. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that... That, that, the, that, the, that the, the Tanakh doesn't tell us what we, the version of Shabbos that we have does not appear explicitly in the Tanakh until this Pasuk. Wasn't there a practice Yes, that's in rabbinic literature. It probably happened in late Second Temple times. When that was instituted, I don't know. I mean, sometime, probably the Maccabean period, I don't know. Um, Okay, the book of Nehemiah ends with the grandson of Eliyashiv, the grandson of the Kohen Gadol, being the son-in-law of Sanbalat. So here, the big enemy, the the, the, uh, governor of of Samaria, of the Shomron, the enemy of Jerusalem, is uh, marrying off his daughter to the grandson of the high priest. And for all the hatred that existed between the Shomron and the Yehuda, there is a cross-border marriage, especially when you're dealing with a high priest whose loyalties are suspect and whose religious uh, tendencies are suspect. So Nehemiah kicks this fellow out of, the, out of the community. The Jewish community was very vulnerable to defilement and to de- destruction, so you have to take a tough stand, and anyone whose loyalties are dubious is gone. Also, the book of Nehemiah ends with the statement that the people are um, 
who are intermarried families don't speak the Jewish language. They don't know Hebrew anymore. They're speaking other language. So this is a, one of the few times in the Bible where language becomes an important religio-national element of identity. We, you know, we lost that in the, in, in the, in the, the long diaspora of the last 2,000 years. I mean, even though there's Yiddish and Ladino and other Jude, uh, Judeo-Arabic, uh, Jewish dialects, still p- plenty of Jews spoke the vernacular of the, of, the, of the land in which they lived. But in a bygone era, in the days of the Tanakh, the language that you spoke was one of the primary identifiers of your, um, your loyalties. What were you? Who were you? You were a Hebrew. You were a Jew because of the language that you spoke. Intermarried family, they speak a different tongue. They're already a goy. That's, that's what, what, what the Bible is saying, that, that, that language leads you off the path onto the path of assimilation. Okay, in the last few minutes we have left, we have to deal with an interesting historical question. We dealt with Ezra first and Nehemiah second. But there's a, a big question in the scholarship, who really came first? We know that Ezra was in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. But was it Artaxerxes the first or Artaxerxes the second? Was it 458 before the Common Era or 398 before the Common Era? Uh, Ezra appears in the text before Nehemiah. So that could tip you off that Ezra comes before Nehemiah. And if Nehemiah is in 444, then Ezra must have been in 458, not 398. But is that really proof positive? So there are many um, uh, objections to the notion that Ezra preceded Nehemiah. For example, if one was in 458 and one was in 444, why would Artaxerxes have sent two men to Judea about the same time equipped with similar powers? In other words, why send a big, important Jew to, to a thousand miles west, to Israel? The first one. No, the first one did good work. The first one did plenty of good work. So that's going to be an answer to this, to this criticism. But it's, 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 to start off with, it's a decent criticism. Why send two Jews uh, only a few years apart to accomplish similar things. Secondly, it is strange if Ezra was such a prominent figure in Jerusalem that there's no genuine reference to him in Nehemiah's account. There is a reference to him as reading the Torah at that big gathering on the 24th of Tishrei. But basically in the book of Nehemiah, Ezra is absent. If he was the leading Jew, the redactor of Torah, the, the, the initiator of all sorts of religious reforms, we should have heard more about him in Nehemiah's account, and we don't. That's, that's a good criticism. Also, Nehemiah in his second administration dealt ruthlessly with the problem of mixed marriage. But, if that had already been taken care of by Ezra, why would it be a problem in the days of Nehemiah? Now, of course, we're going to see an answer that people... They didn't, they, they didn't listen. They didn't listen, or they sent them away when they came back. All right. Another problem. Nehemiah's reforms as narrated would be unaccountable after Ezra, but natural before his time. Meaning, the, uh, the covenant with specific reference to to those mitzvot that we just talked about, makes sense if the Bible is largely unknown. But if Ezra has promulgated a, a, a redacted version of the Mosaic Torah and everybody knows it, why do you need a, a covenant identifying specific mitzvot where we need improvement? Like, uh, Alright, so that's going to be an answer to this criticism. Right, every, every criticism has an answer. Alright, number five. It's inconceivable that the Levites should have driven to work in the fields after Ezra's mission, because after all, he reinvigorated the giving of the tithes. Okay? Um, also, 
Ezra's career was spent in the holy city, which appears to have been well populated in his day. But yet Nehemiah begins by saying the walls are broken, that nobody lives here anymore. Nobody wants to live here anymore. Well, what was it? Was Jerusalem crowded or was it not crowded? Also, in his prayer, Ezra refers to God's grace as manifested before his time. Among other evidence, uh, he cites the giving of offense in Judah and Jerusalem. Well, that might be the wall of Nehemiah, which means Nehemiah preceded Ezra. All right. Also, we have uh, that Ezra went into the chamber of, Yo- of Yochanan, the son of Eliashib, to spend the night. And the lists of, 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 um, of Kohanim Gedolim, Yehochanan is identical with, with Yonatan, and he was a grandson of Eliashiv. But Eliashiv was a contemporary of Nehemiah, which would mean that Ezra was two generations after Nehemiah, which makes sense if you say he was in 398, not in 5, 458. Uh, these are all good criticisms. However, there are answers to all these criticisms. For instance, number one, there's no grounds for assuming that Ezra and Nehemiah were armed with similar powers. One was a political figure, one was a religious figure, that Nehemiah was in charge of social issues, and thus release of, of slaves in sabbatical year, or even in a non-sabbatical year, and built the walls of Jerusalem, whereas Ezra was just, here's the Torah, live by the Torah, more generic religious responsibilities. Two, as for the claim that Ezra is not mentioned in the book of Nehemiah, he's mentioned one time, and once is enough. As for the mixed marriages, like we said, there may have been an attempt to implement a, 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 um, an expulsion order. And maybe it was temporarily in place. But people have children, they have ex-spouses whom they love, and they sent back to Ashdod. What happens a few minutes later, or a few months later? You go to Ashdod and you bring them back. So it was undermined. Um, also true. But I'd like to believe that uh, the, the, the love of one's actual biological family is a, a more significant consideration than I just couldn't find another girl. What was the Yes. That in fact, he accomplished uh, more in the moment. In the long run, Ezra's uh, religious influence is greater, but in the 5th century, Nehemiah's work was much more concrete. All right. Um, all right so these are just a, a few reasons uh, to suggest that Ezra, in fact, did precede Nehemiah, and the order that we have in the Tanakh is accurate. Okay, one last point. Why is the book referred to in our uh, tradition as the book of Ezra? In the, in the, in the Talmud, there only is one book. Ezra and Nehemiah, as we have it, is just Ezra. There is no book of Nehemiah. It's one long book. In fact, there's no Masoretic note at the end of Ezra. The Masoretic note comes at the end of Nehemiah, indicating the conclusion of Osefer. So the Gemara Baba Basu explains that because Nehemiah badmouthed his predecessors as having failed in their responsibilities as Jewish leaders to implement uh, Jewish safety and, and religious law, and he sort of said nice things about himself, not that he was arrogant, but that he kept saying, look God, what I accomplished, what I did with the, with the Levim and the, and, and, and the Maestros. Look what, what I did with the base Amigdash, with the walls. So he's always tooting his own horn, and that lack of humility meant that, you know what, in, poster, in, in posterity, uh, we're not going to remember his name with the name of the book. They'll be called the book of Ezra, not the book of Nehemiah. Okay, we'll stop here. Uh, that's a good point.